Welcome to This Week in Lotus. The weekly roundtable discussion of all things social, collaboration, technology and community. Here's your host, Stuart McIntyre. This Week in Lotus, episode 40 for Friday 25th February 2011. Design at IBM Lotus, the inside track on One UI and device specific design. This show is a proud member of the Tech Podcast Network. If it's tech, it's here. You can find this and other tech-related podcasts at techpodcast.com. Hey there, Stuart McIntyre here. Darren Duke and I would love to have some Lotus community folks sponsoring this podcast. So if you'd like to get your message out to the wider Yellowverse, there really is no better way. Sponsor This Week in Lotus now. Get in touch with us at ideas at thisweekinlotus.com. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of This Week in Lotus. We're back for another episode discussing everything that's going on in the Lotus community. Uh, I'm joined by the ever-present Darren Duke. Hi there, Darren. Stuart, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How are yeah, you? we have all of them on the show today. Um, yeah, I am very, very, very good. Thank you. Uh, it's been a, a busy week here, lots of, of customer uh, meetings and discussions, so it's been a good one. It's been a newsy week. We, we've got a lot of news to cover, so it seems like this was the, the, the storm after the calm for the week after Lotosphere. And then I also realise we're getting our countdown towards episode 52, which is our one-year anniversary. It's only like 12 away now. We are. We're going to have to think of something uh, good there. I think it might even sort of line up with um, UK Lug as well when we're all going to be together in a room. So maybe we can do something special then. It'll, it'll be good to celebrate a year of doing these things. It's amazing how quickly it's gone. It is, yes. It's it's shockingly fast. 40 is like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you've been on every single one as well. So kudos to you for doing that. It's more than I've managed. I am Iron Man. Yeah. So um we're back for uh you know another weekly episode of discussion around whatever's going on in the Lotus world. And we're joined um by a director uh in IBM today, uh director of user experience and information development, Chris Paul. Hi there, Chris. Hi Stuart. Hello, it's great to have you on the show today. Do you wanna tell us what that role encompasses? What do you do for IBM? Certainly, Stuart and Darren, uh so I'm delighted to be here today. I appreciate very much the opportunity to chat with you guys and join you here on this podcast. So um, I have a unique job inside of IBM leading across the Lotus portfolio, the user experience design and information development activities. I have a number of, of designers working across the business um, from notes to connections to Lotus Live, doing information development, doing design, visual design, user research across all those products. Brilliant. Well, that's that's quite a wide role. So I'm really looking forward to, to asking you about it today. And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail in a minute. We're also joined by Matt Newman all the way over in Australia. Hi there, Matt. G'day, guys. How are you? Really, really good. How are you? What time is it there? It has just gone, oh my God, oh three, it's early. <laughs> <laughs> it was great to have you on the show. Do you want to tell everybody what you do down there? I bleed yellow. <laughs> 
<laughs> we kind of figured that out at Lotusphere. What do you do to uh, to earn the money to bleed yellow? To earn the blunt money to bleed yellow, uh, work for Premier Partner ISW in Australia. Uh, we run around Southeast Asia consulting on all things Lotus. So whether it's uh, WebSphere, I can say that, can't I? You can. uh, whether it's WebSphere, <laughs> whether it's um, Connections, Quicker, Same Time, Traveller, and of course, Knights and Domino, where the guys to come to if you need any help. Excellent. Well, thanks for taking time out and, and coming on the show, particularly at this very late hour as well. It's great to, to have you on. So, Chris, let's let's kick off with um, a discussion around kind of your role with IBM. Um, you manage a team, I guess, as part of this role of uh, user experience and information development. Who's in that team and, and what did the team do? So, Stuart, um, I do manage a team. You know, I'm fortunate to have a number of highly talented, passionate folks uh, that work with me on um, the product design and information development across the portfolio. And again, it's a pretty eclectic bunch. We've got uh, designers, we've got user researchers, we have writers, we have editors, usability specialists, and a lot of folks doing UX strategy. So looking out, you know, dot .next or dot .next plus, plus one uh, product roadmaps and, and uh, helping us devise our plans for those products as we move down the path. Okay, so are there any folks that we would know sort of in the community, bloggers or, or people that present at Lowsphere that, that, that belong in those teams? Absolutely. I'm sure you know uh, many of them pretty well. Mary Beth Raven, of course, is uh, one of our most visible and prolific uh, customer advocates and designers that we have on the staff. Uh, Joyce Davis runs uh, a lot of our community efforts on the ID side. We're going to be uh, um, having Joyce look across both ID and UX from a community perspective this year. And I'm sure you know a lot of the product designers um, that we have and, and many of the folks who are involved in the wiki development and, and design for the information developers. So just just for my edification, can you maybe expand on the word information development? Because that was a new one on me today. I was a bit stumped when I saw the acronym. <laughs> sure, Darren. So information development is really around the idea of around of crafting the technical information represented in the help and the accompanying product doc associated with uh, the products that, that we put out to market. Um, and of course, on our on ID inside Lotus, we do a lot more than just that doc, right? We have multimedia um, efforts. Uh, we are very active in the community. Um, we do a lot of getting started type uh, uh, content and function within the products. And so it really is the written word and, and oftentimes the, the multimedia artifacts associated with how our products operate, how to help people get started with them, how to operate them, how to configure them, and so forth. Okay, so if, if we have user experience, we have information development, obviously you are the director of both. Where is the kind of intersection, or was this just a mistake where you didn't say no one day when you should have <laughs> said no? <laughs> Not at all. It was absolutely intentional. And I think that the philosophy there is – that user experience in and of itself encompasses your first experience and your continued experience with a product. And if you think about how people often first engage with our products, it's, it's often through written word. It might be written word on a website. It might be in marketing materials and so forth. But oftentimes people dive into that product doc. They dive into that wiki. They look at the getting started uh, and, and uh, tutorials out there to understand what that product's about, how it works, how they can imagine themselves using it. And so be, oftentimes before they see a live pixel of the product, 
They're, they're reading documentation. And so I believe firmly that user experience must absolutely encompass the written word that goes along with that. I mean, you know, certainly you can imagine uh, help text and, and whatnot in a product is a central part of that user experience. We want to expand upon that. We want to make that help text be as valuable as it can be, but we want to build things around that to expand the artifacts of the written word to help people get started as quickly as they can with the uh, portfolio. And I think you're absolutely right, actually. Yeah, I would echo Chris, that too. Go on, Matt. Uh, Chris, another vendor had, a couple of versions ago went down the path of making the first point of call an online help experience. So if you jumped into their product, you pressed F1, brought up the help menu, then it actually took you out to their online help rather than using offline help. Is there any plan for Lotus to go down that path or are you going to continue supplying first-class documentation built into the product that can be accessed offline? So I think, Matt, that we will absolutely continue to supply documentation that people will be able to get at offline, right? Because I believe that we have, you know, as you, as you all here know, um, a very diverse customer base with very diverse requirements. And so I do think we are looking at, you know, and even at the corporate level, we're looking at some interesting possibilities for how we might aggregate and uh, integrate our documentation deliverables across the entire portfolio of IBM stuff. Right, so you, you buy our stuff, you install it, you have a common experience for documentation across all of it. I think there's a lot of value in that sort of integration. But there's many folks who, you know, who want to have the, you know, the offline access to that doc. Um, many folks who you know, want to provide and, and, and get at the, the online version of the doc as well. So I, I can't imagine that we would abandon you know, one path in favor of the other. I think our customers require us to have both those active at all times. And with talk of offline access, I guess that brings on to the you know, the many different ways in which people work these days, you know, whether it's on the web or on a desktop client or or mobile devices. You must have to, to think about all three of those and probably more besides. Does that bring additional challenges to, to your role around UX design? It absolutely does, Stuart. And, you know, I, I think that when, when we, we think about documentation, you know, at, at the... 70,000 foot level, we certainly think about the user, meeting the user wherever they may be um, to give them the information that, that they need uh, to satisfy, you know, troubleshooting or, or, or whatnot. What's interesting, I think, about the, the mobile experiences, however, is, you know, I was, I was talking to actually to one of our designers the other day, and I told him, I don't think I've ever accessed Doc on a mobile device, Right. And so the, the seamlessly building information into that user experience is more the norm on the mobile devices. And a lot of that is because of the form factor. And so I think there is some new challenges associated with that. And we've got to make sure that both the mobile solutions we push out are terribly intuitive, that fit into the platform. And, um, and, and if there is some information that's needed beyond what's in the UI, that that, that is designed appropriately uh, given the conventions of, of the form factor and the device itself. And 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 I I would I would tend to agree. I, I I don't think I've ever accessed any technical information on a mobile device, but with my addition to my cadre of hernia giving devices, my Android um, Galaxy tablet, that that's starting to change. I'm starting to go there a lot more because it's 
it's pretty much always with me. So, so how, how are you guys planning to handle that? Are, are you just changing the form factor? Are you looking to make it maybe web-based and then just go across all five, six, 12 of major browsers, whatever there is now? Well, I think it's a good question, Darren. Um, certainly, the tablets bring a, a different dimension than traditional smartphones. Um, you know, I know that the intent around tablets is more for authoring and, you know, more of as a desktop replacement. And so I think there certainly is design considerations and access considerations that um, we've, we've got to consider there. Um, and so I do believe that that form factor itself does afford its, you know, us with more of an opportunity to deliver, you know, a more reliable information channel associated with that. And, you know, I think we'll certainly uh, take advantage of that. But I think at, at the same time, the expectations is even in that larger form that the conventions of the mobile platform itself have to be extended to that that experience as well. So, you know, those experiences must be designed for that form factor. They, they, they ought to be terribly intuitive given the conventions of, of the, uh, the platform itself. And I, again, I think that the, the convention there is to weave information seamlessly into that experience so you're given what you need when you need it rather than having necessarily go out and access um, a specific doc associated with it. But that said, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to access our online doc resources and so forth. And I'm interested in making sure that there's seamless connectivity between that, that user experience and that uh, online doc source. And that part of that is what we call kind of a progressive disclosure strategy. So we don't want to overwhelm you with all kinds of links and all kinds of docs and technical information. We want to give you what you need to get started. And as you reveal that you want more or need more, we want to be able to give you the options to either get that in line or to go off uh, to a different source and get it. And, and I think that's a good idea. I, c I could imagine probably one of the worst things on the planet will be trying to access an info center on a tablet. <laughs> Absolutely. You probably need like six tablets strung together to kind of expand <laughs> the info center. Um, but I, I digress. So we, we've, we've just popped out a lot of sphere. Um, my, my guess is that you guys have some goals and focus areas coming for 2011 through 2012 to maybe up to next year's Lotus for you. Uh, do you want to kind of discuss them for us? Chris, are you there? I am, Stuart. Did you hear Darren's question? Uh, I didn't hear the end of it, sorry. Do you want to phrase that question again, Darren? Yeah. Um, so we've just come out of Lotusphere, and my guess is you and your team have some goals and focus areas coming up for the rest of the year and maybe up through Lotusphere 2012. Do you kind of want to outline what your goals and maybe uh, focus areas are? Sure. I appreciate that, Darren. Let me first say that, you know, this is one of our most successful Lotuspheres ever from a UX and ID perspective. We, did, we had a tremendous amount of traffic coming through the lab. Um, Lots of great conversations. I got to meet many of you, and it was, you know, by far in in my memory the best one we've ever had from a UXID perspective. We got so much good information and so much good actionable information. People really wanted to engage with us very specifically to help uh, improve the products, and we very much appreciate that. So I know at Lotusphere we heard a lot about social business as a platform, which is absolutely a business strategy that we embrace, and we are on um, aggressive track to deliver on. You know, when you when you talk about user experience and information development goals, you know, kind of underneath that, uh, you know, what we're looking at really is three main areas. So primarily, we're after user adoption, and you know, this goes to your question earlier, Darren, about you know why is it that information development and, and UX is together? I mean, I believe again 
that we've got to do the job of making our, our products terribly intuitive, making them relate to one another. So patterns and interaction that you might experience on one product apply to another product. And so you can quickly get up to speed on things. So you know, lowering that threshold of user adoption is really job one for our team. And there's both you know, information design and user experience design deliverables associated with that. Now, the second major goal is really consistency. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about One UI a little bit today. We started One UI a few years back, and it was really a um, at the beginning a a set of patterns and styles associated with a couple products in the portfolio, and has quickly uh, gained in prominence and now is applied uh, across many products in the portfolio. And we're continuing to to push there, but again, we want to make sure that the products that we push out are consistent. So, you know, again, the patterns that, of interaction that you see in one place can apply to other ones. We know that for our largest customers, you know, deploying our new products or, you know, buying, you know, another product in our portfolio, uh, oftentimes there's training and other costs associated with that. We want to lower that cost. We want to we want to get people more quickly to value. And the best way to do that, again, is through uh, consistency of the application uh, patterns associated with our products. And I think the third one is really about integration, right? So, you know, you heard us, and have heard us talk about Project Vulcan for a long time. That was actually a design initiated, uh, um, um, you know, what we call a shred in the design world. And a shred is a very fast, aggressive project for a couple of weeks for a small team of designers to get together. And we kicked off, I think, in, in it was 2009 or so, the uh, design shred around looking ahead at our portfolio. And that, you know, snowballed into what is, now Project Vulcan. So Project Vulcan at its core is all about integration. It's about bringing information to you where you need it, you know, reducing the amount of uh, uh, other places you have to go to to get uh, uh, information and, and to help you stay in the context of the work that you're doing um, without having to, to constantly split off and, and go attend to X, Y, and Z. And so integration and um, driving integration patterns across our portfolio is a fundamental part of, of what designs and ideas trying to get done uh, this year as well. And, and I think historically, you, you've actually done a very good job. Uh, you know, Stuart has a couple of examples on his website where connections and, and quicker, be it quicker J or quicker D are integrated together. And you really can't tell right. from, a, from a user standpoint that you're leaving one environment and going to another. And I think that's going to be key for, for whatever Vulcan does become. And Matt, perhaps we can bring you in here. You do a lot of user training, don't you, and education. Do you do you hear from your users you speak to that they see the kind of synergies and the user design flow through all the different Lotus products? And is that a help to them in terms of learning to use them? Absolutely. What you see a lot, especially now with the 8.5 code stream, there's a convergence between the interface, especially between the web client and the desktop client, so when you're specifically talking about the personal information management, mail, calendar, tasks, sorry, to-dos, etc., between the notes client and the web client, there's a, a convergence there where the interface is very similar and the functionality is starting to get on par. It's not quite there yet. You can't still do all of the things in the web client that you can do in the notes client, but it's getting really close. And, and clearly part of, of that is around One UI. So, um, you know, 
Chris, do you want to talk to us a little bit about One UI? I mean, my impression from a business partner standpoint has been around for, what, two or three years, and we've seen evolution of One UI, and now we're talking about Project Vulcan as well. So do you want to tell us about One UI, how that came about, uh, how you've applied it, and then kind of where that's going towards Vulcan in the future? Absolutely. So One UI in its infancy was, it's interesting that Matt brings up, you know, you know and Stuart, you do two connections in quicker because in its infancy, One UI was specifically uh, um, put together to address UI consistency issues we had in connections in quicker. Right? Uh, we wanted to make sure that you know at that point in time, the two primary web products that you know new ones that we were pushing out, you know, had a relationship to each other, and we recognized, of course, for all the things we've already talked about today, that they must have a relationship, and so that's where UI be- uh, One UI began. And what One UI is, is is really two things. So it's a set of interaction patterns, right? So, uh, you know, Yahoo is a set of patterns out there. Most uh, big software vendors have a set of a repository of interaction patterns that describe, you know, from the simplest things, you know, what are the core molecular parts of a, of a user interface and how do those molecular parts come together to form an experience? And so One UI is a set of, of interaction patterns associated with that. And there's also some styling on top of that. I mean, some cosmetics. You have to, you know, you know, put these things together in some visual form. But um, at its core, it's that, it's that set of patterns. And what we've also done, and we did this, you know, initially more out of necessity than than by design, is we've created a one UI toolkit that we use internally, which is a set of code widgets and code snippets and so forth that the product teams that we work with can more easily use and readily adopt the one UI patterns. And so all of this has, over time, uh, grown into a rather substantial artifact. Um, and it's, it's really an internal set of patterns, internal style guide, and some of the accompanying code that um, helps the adoption of, of those patterns within the product set. And so we're on a mission to get that code, get the one UI patterns represented every place that we can. And, you know, I must say we've had some tremendously good success on that, and especially the last couple of years, um, based in part because we've got some very passionate and talented folks on our One UI development team and on the design team who have been driving um, that mission. And obviously there's been a few kind of iterations of that, haven't there, in terms of, for example, Connections 3 now has drop-down menus and so on. Will you be looking to, to push those kind of changes across the whole uh, set of uh, portfolio products? That's the intent. You know, it, we do recognize that we want to, um, you know, I think the, 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 the interesting thing about pattern libraries is knowing when to stop, right? Because I, I think that, you know, especially <laughs> as designers, you know, we, we see room for improvement all the time. We see things that we can do better. We want to do better. We want to push those things. But recognizing that the things we're making here, um, you know, go beyond design problems, and, and, and are pushed into products, which then are used by people and people get used to things and so forth. And so I think the, the challenge in any pattern effort is to know when you have a core set of things and it's okay for you to, you know, stop developing new patterns. Now it's not to say we, we, we won't develop new stuff and that we, we aren't constantly looking at what happens around us for inspiration and so forth on how we can make our portfolio better. But we certainly recognize that um, we've got to be very deliberate about plans to to change those patterns, um, to evolve them, and so forth, because there's costs associated both with the development um, associated with that change and then in the adoption of it. 
But, you know, to answer your question directly, we, we absolutely I mean you know, the things that you're seeing in connections is often on the cutting edge of the one UI direction. Um, the connections team has been fantastic over the years, really partnering with us to make one UI something more than it could have been otherwise. And so it's just a, it's, it's a very productive uh, uh, um, partnership with that team. Excellent. And, and of course, at the user level, um, which I guess is unusual for IBM in terms of users seeing these products every day, it's not something that I'm guessing designers across the rest of, of IBM are used to dealing with, but th- they see the products every day and they're seeing that UI is very similar. Um, and I think that helps adoption of those products. From an administration developer point of view, the the sort of process of customizing the One UI is very different between, say, X Pages and iNotes and Same Time and Connections. Is there any effort to make uh, customizations easier to apply across the board so you can you can customize the whole portfolio in sort of fewer steps than you do today? That is absolutely the ultimate goal, and you know, uh, you know, I, I would, I want us to move very, you know, continue to move very aggressively in that direction, and I think we have made. Um, over the last couple of years, significant advances there, but I know we've got more work to do. But ultimately, what we want to get to um, with the propagation of One UI, both from uh, interaction pattern perspective, styles, and then you know, the accompanying code, is we want to get to a point where you have a single set of artifacts that you can customize and personalize, and then apply those across the deployments that you have from Lotus. And so I think One UI certainly is the path to do that. And again, I know we've got some more work there to do, but um, we are committed to achieving that. Um, it's, it's terribly important for us, and that's one of the reasons why One UI, um, in addition to that consistency of pattern and, and styles and so forth, it's one of the fundamental reasons why One UI exists. So we don't have to change things you know, six different times. We can change them once when we need to and propagate those changes everywhere. And our customers can get that benefit too um, as we uh, mature more of the One UI platform and the portfolio within it. So let me just back up a second because because Matt had a good point about saying you know eventually now iNotes is almost identical to the Notes client in both look and feel and functionality. But to kind of echo Stuart's point, I, I would say iNotes is probably the single hardest product I have ever tried to customize on in the history of my long long career. I'm way older than I look, dear listeners. <laughs> um, is is there any kind of plan to maybe look at one UIing iNotes itself or is that just going to be like okay we spent all this money getting it to look like notes we're kind of going to leave it that way for you know for the time being well I think we want to advance on both fronts there I think we want to advance um, what's happening in the notes client itself and also what's happening in uh, the web versions of, of, of you know iNotes and, and whatnot and so you know I, I hear you on that I mean I, I think that What's interesting about the iNotes product, you know, that, that team is led by some terribly brilliant folks, in, in my opinion. And before it was even possible to do a lot of, or, or reasonably possible to do a lot of, of the web interaction patterns um, out there, they were doing it. Yeah, they, they, they were doing Ajax before it had a name, I mean, a good was, five years before it had yeah. a name. And it's, it's incredible. And so the rest of the world is kind of caught up to that. You know, but the amount of of coding, and again, I'm not I'm not a math guy. I went to art school, right? But the amount of coding that I know they had to do to get, you know, things functioning as they 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 are today was immense, right? So it's it's no, you know, I, I don't I don't find it uh, in any way. Um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely understandable that there's some customization issues associated with that because the, the product itself, um, in, in order to to have that simplicity of experience and to have 
you know, what at the time was terribly aggressive um, interaction patterns. There was a lot of uh, crazy code that had to happen underneath of it. So, but I think as as we as a platform are maturing and looking very carefully at what we have, how we've developed those over the years, and so forth, and as we begin to modernize um, more aspects of that, we recognize this incredible need for people to be able to deploy our stuff and to easily tune it to match, you know, either you know their their company uh, um, color palettes, you know, simple things like that. And so forth, and we want to enable that. We recognize this is a, is not just a requirement um, externally, but a need for us internally to have better, re you know, sharing of code and reuse. Uh, but we also recognize it as a business opportunity. We know that you know the easier it is for our stuff to be customized, the easier it is to make it fit into existing stuff that people have in their products um, deployments today. The better off we're going to be, and the more attractive that product is to customers. And so, you know, I can assure you, we're on that path. So, Chris, sitting on my desktop right now is a piece of software that I'm absolutely passionate about. I love it. I think it's the greatest single piece of computer software ever created. How much is that interface going to change given the direction of one UI that we're taking? I'm sorry, what product did you mention was your favorite? Lotus Notes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it too. I mean, yeah. So, you know, Lotus Notes has a, uh, a terribly uh, passionate uh, following, and uh, you know, we we don't want to mess with with uh, you guys on on many of these topics because we know you you love what we have. We know you love what you can build on it, and you love the power associated with it. Um, you know, I I think that as we go down the path, and uh, you know, look at consistency across our family of products and so forth you know we do want to explore some modernization some tweaks and so forth associated with the notes client i think in the next you know major release you know you guys expect us to be looking at you know things like simplification to look at consistency and so forth and you know notes is a terrifically great product there's there's stuff for us to do there um we're anxious to to talk to you more about that at the appropriate times but you know I, I can safely say to you that we're you know, the spirit of, of what is notes, the spirit of what is associated with what you love about notes is certainly not going to change. I mean, we do want to make the, the whole family of products, you know, and again, this isn't just an, a Lotus statement. This is really an IBM software statement. We're on this, this goal together as an entire set of brands to bring together a powerful portfolio that can integrate more seamlessly than we've ever thought it was even possible. That's going to take us some time to get done, but you know, to do that, we've got to kind of start in our own backyard, make things, you know, standardize some things, make things more, as, as Darren was saying, more customizable and so forth. And we want to, you know, make sure that the experience you have there uh, mirrors your expectations relative to th things that are in market today and in, in other places. And so we're modernizing appropriately where it's necessary for us to do so. Okay, just following on from that, Chris. Um, one of the huge booms that we've seen in IT in the last few years is a lot of users who traditionally haven't been IT users uh, getting their hands on technology based on a simplified design. So I'm literally thinking of the iOS interface here. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a great interface. People obviously love it, but from a technical point of view, there are a lot of features and functionality that are missing out of 
that particular operating system, let, let's take something really, really simple like to-dos not being on the iOS. How hard do you find it building a design that's still functional? And you're talking specifically there about our efforts on the mobile platforms, is that... No, no, no. And it, broadly, how, how hard is it to correlate a better design and better user interaction while keeping that same level of functionality within the platform? Yeah, so that, that is an interesting one because you're, you're, we're talking about um, many of the products who've been around for you know decades almost. Um, and so there's lots of lines of code. There's lots of um, existing expectations and so forth. And that's one of the biggest challenges I think the design team faces um, in a company like Lotus inside of a company like IBM. Um, you know, we do have lots of people looking at the products in very different ways. Um, you know, we, we can't, by definition, decide to change things very dramatically, you know, one week to the next. I mean, A, we can't get things done that fast because there's lots of code to, to write and test and so forth to meet, you know, the, you know, the expectations that you have on us around quality and so forth. And at the same time, I mean, you know, do we, do we want to do, you know, do we want to make those kind of changes in, in, in that way? And so there absolutely is a tension there, um, but I think that when we separate out the manifestation of the UI, right, and we say, what is the core tasks associated with usage here, right? You know, so when, when you go and create a task, when you alter a task, you know, yes, you're clicking checkboxes, yes, you're filling in uh, text in fields, but the core task that you're doing there is you're creating a task, you're editing something. And I think as you know, generally our field advances, there's, there's different vocabulary, there's different artifacts, there's different molecular parts that come into play that, are, that have, I think, an interest to us and have some applicability to some of those core patterns. And so my assertion to you is that as long as we're faithful to that core task, right, that modernization efforts, for example, we're, we're tweaking a little bit of the UI here and there and it may be a, a bit of a change from where we've been before, but those you know, come about as an expected change. And that's the sweet spot that we try to hit at, as designers. So not change for the sake of change, but change to improve an experience, you know, to apply some, you know, something that you know, we didn't have access to maybe, you know, eight, ten years ago, and to make that core task more efficient, more predictable, and easier for, for folks to uh, accomplish. And, and and I think doing that with discipline as well, because I remember ev pretty much every single release of Notes 8 through 8.5, the right-click context menus changed, and it was <laughs> pretty irritating. Right. But, but every single time, now that now they are very good, and they've got pretty much everything in there you'd want to right-click. But for a while, every time we did an upgrade, people were complaining that stuff had disappeared or stuff had moved. So I, I think you're exactly right: is change for change's sake is not always a good idea. Right. Absolutely, and and that can be you know it, it's terribly damaging, especially you know in I, I think software uh, field like ours where the predictability of a user experience, let's face it, is is the thing that people want the most. I mean, you know, they, they you know, people are using notes, they're using our products to do things, but you know, the end goal isn't to use our products. The end goal is to communicate with someone, it's to send an email, it's to, you know, talk to your colleagues. And so it's important as designers we keep those tasks in mind and we, we want the interface to facilitate those tasks, but not get in the way of it. And, and again, a lot of what comes to bear on, on the design decisions we make is where people have been. What do they find predictable today? Um, and you know, 
I don't want to mess with things like that unless there's a, a darn good reason to do it. You know, we, we don't want to make arbitrary changes on stuff, and, and again, unless there's a compelling reason to do that. So let me put the, the, the boot on either foot for a second. Um, we do a lot of exchange to notes migrations, and I'm actually in the middle of one right now, and I'm starting another one on Friday. And so we do a lot of this. And, and one of the things that consistently irritates me when I install a, specifically a Lotus Notes client is nothing useful is turned on at all. Right. And to let the user go try and find them is A, a big mistake, and B, it's just generally not a very good idea given the damage you can do in Eclipse with the wrong preferences. So I know this maybe isn't your kind of, you know, Ballywick, for want of a better word, but have we, have we ever looked at what, what a product looks like from the moment you install it, instead of adding all these features in, what about turning some of them on by default? I think Chris, it's a very... And, I, you know, I, I, I just wanted to jump in here for a second, Darren. The job that the guys have done with the advancement of policies and modifying some of those default user preferences in, in the last couple of years has made our job a hell of a lot easier than it was a few years ago. And I think that the team actually need to be congratulated on the leaps and bounds that have been made with especially policy-based administration and making some of those settings easier to implement right from day one. And, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, but my show and tell sessions on policies, and I can tell you now, everything in the client is not on a policy. In fact, it's, <laughs> it's slowly getting worse. Um, but my, my point is that you know we, we've got this heritage of people thinking Lotus Notes is 20 years old. It's a piece of junk. And, it, even, and everyone likes to say it's because you're on R5 and R6. It's not. It's because they don't have basic things like alarms turned on. So if your dominant administrator got fired 20 years or even, even two months ago, the chances of you finding a policies mark are, are, are a bit remote. And I should expect from... The, the the functionality I get in installers today, it cannot be that hard to automatically turn on alarms the moment the product is installed. Right. No, I think it's I think it's a good point. And you know, I appreciate Matt your comments and Darren, I appreciate the question and I also appreciate the fact that you're uh doing lots of uh, exchange to notes uh, uh migrations. <laughs> um so you know, I, I think that there, there's no doubt there's there's work here we can do, and I know that Mary Beth recently actually put together um, a set of um, I think it was a blog entry and some other accompanying materials on you know making the switch from Exchange to Notes and and how you could as a user uh, you know have an experience that's closer to um, what you may have had in in Outlook but better because it's Notes, and so I I do think that you know there are we have artifacts that can be tuned I think to alleviate some of the the issues that you're experiencing in these migrations you know and, and in fact I'd like to talk with you more about this one in particular because I think there's there's some pretty direct paths of improvement that we can take pretty rapidly to help you out and so you know let's let's talk a bit more about this one and um, you know see if we can't uh, uh, push on this a little bit and and uh, get you uh, some help on on that front because I think it's a terribly important thing. If we're going to continue to evangelize and make the case for notes everywhere, we want to make sure that, the, and again, this goes back to my earlier point, that first foot in the door, that first pixel that's live, the first bit of information that they read, it has to be as compelling as we can make it. We, we can't you know, lead with all the stuff turned off and something that's you know, less than useful. All right? Notes is terribly powerful. We all know that. And so we want to put our best foot out there. And so I'd, I'd love to 
you know, partner with you on this one a bit more and see if we can't uh, shake some things loose. I think that would be a good idea. And I'd love to get you out on an exchange migration so you can hear some of the interesting questions. <laughs> give me a, give me a date, give me a date and a time and we'll be there. That's great. <laughs> great to hear, Chris. It really is. And you know, things like Fultex Index have come up in that discussion just in the last week in terms of some of those things being turned on again by default and made more easy for users to find too. Um, something I'd be interested in, Chris, is are, are there other vendors that you look at in terms of design um, and information sharing too that do it very, very well that you think you could copy in terms of how IBM do things? Um, are, are there any you know, vendors that, that do it, maybe do it better than IBM that you can learn from? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily better than IBM. I mean, I would say different than IBM. Um, you know, I'm a designer, so I'm, you know, in many respects, contractually obligated to mention Apple. And, <laughs> if you hadn't, I would have done. <laughs> and, you know, I think, you know, I'm not only a user of their products, admirer of, you know, what they've been able to build over the years, um, but more importantly, the design culture that they have, right? I mean, they absolutely are a company that understands very intimately that a lot of their market success is based on their ability to design compelling stuff. And, you know, you know and again, they're in a very different business than IBM. But you have to imagine that the intimacy that they've built between design, development, marketing, and so forth, and how, you know, that three-legged stool really functions in an incredibly high uh, fashion. And I think that, you know, but when I also look at um, other aspects, right, you know, other companies and, and, and uh, um, organizations out there, I had a good friend just recently turn me on to um, Tony Shea wrote a book. He's the, the guy I think who founded Zappos. He wrote a, a book called Delivering Happiness. And, you know, I think a company like Zappos is someone to be looked at and admired too. I mean, and again, for some of the same reasons that Apple is, but for, you know, different flavors. I mean, they build a, a culture of teaming and collaboration inside their business that is pretty phenomenal to, to, uh, you know, explore. And so that's the shoe you know, people, right? What's that? Yeah. The shoe the sh people. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't read that book, I would recommend it highly. It's uh, delivering happiness by Tony Shea, but it's, uh, um, you know, to understand the journey they've taken and the decisions that they've made along the way to, um, to create a, a company culture that they have now. And again, it's a very different thing. It's on the far end of the spectrum, but I think there's a lot to be learned about, uh, you know, teaming, collaboration, designing the experience with your company and with your product from uh, folks like, like Zappos. And you mentioned Apple, Chris. Um, yeah, Mac's quite a big topic in the community this last couple of weeks in terms of DDE, but we'll stay away from that for the moment. But in terms of developing for the Mac, whether it's a notes client or whether it's some of the um, yeah, browser-based experience, does that lead you to different design decisions uh, compared to developing for Windows? I mean, you know, the Mac UI is very different and, and the emphasis is in different areas in terms of ease of use versus functionality. Does that lead you to different decisions in terms of how you develop for it? Yeah, I mean, there is certainly um, very different decisions oftentimes that are required, you know, one platform to the next. And I think certainly that on the Apple side, there is, uh, um, you know, it, it, as a platform that's that's designed in a very different fashion than, for example, Windows is, uh, being able to fit into that and, and feel like you're a part of that operating system, feel like you're a part of the Apple experience certainly uh, can be challenging. All right, and you know, and I equate that. You know, as I as I think more about you know these sorts of these issues, you know, I I think very specifically 
on some early ideas I formed in my head back when I was working in uh, mobile, initially in mobile computing, which I called, you know, device appropriate design, right? You know, we, we can't, you know, try to create things that commoditize a device choice, right? Because I think that people make very specific decisions about the experience that they want to have, you know, and some of those ex- decisions are based on style, some on function, um, some are on, you know, all the other things associated with a, a purchase decision that's very complex. But you buy an Apple for a particular reason, you buy a Windows machine for a particular reason, you buy a tablet, you buy a smartphone, and all the flavors of that. We've got to make sure that the, the products that we design, that the experiences that we push out, you know, fit into the expectations of that particular platform. And, you know, that's, that's hard to do. It's expensive to do, but it's expected of that user base. And so, you know, it's important for us as, as designers and as technologists to recognize that to to drive towards a, a uh, um, strategy that aligns what we build with the expectations of that particular device. Device-specific design, how does that fit into one UI? If, you, if you're trying to create a, let's call it an IBM user experience across all of the products so that everyone can just walk in and jump from quicker to connections to same time to notes, what sort of challenge does fitting in with a particular vendor's look and feel pose to the design team? So I think that's a fantastic question. And it really goes back to, um, in some respects, philosophical discussions on, on One UI. Let me you know, quickly say that, again, at the core of One UI is a set of patterns, interaction patterns. And as I discussed, I think that, you know, on top of that, to manifest those patterns in a way where users can touch and, and feel them and, and uh, operate them, there has to be some styling and, and so forth there. But again, the patterns are the core IP. The patterns are, are the thing that, that drives that consistency. And so I would assert, Matt, that if those patterns are common but are expressed in a way that is indicative of that platform, that we've achieved the goal of one UI. Right, because you know, one UI isn't about everything looking the same, right? I mean, we want to make sure that stuff out of the box that you know, you know, it's from IBM, you know, it's from Lotus. You know, there's there's a perception of of how you use it and how you can enter into those products easily and so forth. But again, to do the job right, we have to make sure that these things are expressed in a way that fit in the environment that that they're in. And again, it's not it's not an easy task. It's it's difficult. It's challenging, and it can be expensive. But, you know, it's the right thing for us to do. And so one UI at its core is about consistency of experience, consistency of expectation, predictable UIs. And I think how it manifests and how it, it is visually manifested in, in uh, you know, platforms um, may very well be different. Um, and, you know, that's by design. Chris, you've just completely blown away every perception of one UI that I ever had. He means really? about perception. <laughs> in what it, way, Matt? In what way? It comes back to this this direction that IBM seemed to have been heading in the last few years, where everything will look the same way, no matter what the platform happens to be. And of course, Stuart, you'd know that that's obviously different with a Mac because you don't go file preferences, whereas those of us on Linux and PC do. Yeah. Right. Yep. So when you apply that sort of thinking to what Chris has just been saying, it, it absolutely fits. And 
a penny has just dropped for me as to what one Yui actually means. Excellent. Well, well that, uh, yeah, that's a good good thing anyway. I think you've explained it really, really well, Chris, because, again, I, I kind of had that vision that it, it's all about, you know, um, curves in the right places and colours that match, and clearly it's a much, much bigger topic than that. And, and something I would feed into the discussion of One UI is that I think as IBM kind of adopt social business as your uh, or, or you know as Lotus adopts social business as your main kind of focus going forward I think people are going to more and more look for design clues that come from some of the consumer social sites things like Twitter and Facebook and they of course have very dynamic UIs don't they they change regularly uh, they're, they're always introducing new features because they're cloud-based um, can IBM keep up with that level of change you know we're used to seeing maybe new releases every year or every two years do you think as you move towards social business people are going to expect change more regularly and indeed should it even try and keep up with some of the social sites that are out there well it's certainly an interesting question and, and one that we've uh, we've given a lot of thought to and you know I, I think that um, you know in some instances for example you know, with our with our cloud products, there is an expectation. Again, this goes back to kind of the device appropriate conversation we just had. You know, not only is there an expectation of you know how things are manifested, how they fit in with the UI, but there's an expectation today of change. And I think we have to recognize that in you know certainly in particular parts of our portfolio. And you know, we have to answer kind of that clarion call. Um, you know, of of modernization and so forth, um, and continual refinement and evolution of of those. Artifacts, but you know, to be very frank about it, we have to do that in an IBM Lotus kind of way. I mean, an expectation that folks have on us is that the stuff we put out there isn't going to fall down, isn't going to break, isn't going to, um, you know, be hey, we've got this beta thing out there, go check it out and let us know what you think, and we might change it next Thursday. That's not our business. You know, our business is making stuff that's not going to fall down, that's going to allow you to conduct, you know, the the business that you're doing in a very predictable, reliable fashion. Um, and, 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 and be able to depend upon it. And so, you know, it's important for us to balance expectations of the customer base with the things that we're building. But at the same time, again, we have to look at, at what happens around us because every, um, every day people are coming use our software and they're bringing to that more and more expectations that come from the consumer world of software. And so we, we cannot be blind to that. We cannot dismiss it. We have to embrace those those uh, uh, comparisons, we have to learn from them. And yes, I think we, we have to uh, evolve and, and refine many of the things we have as the technology around us revolves, evolves and, and refines. I mean, let's face it, you know, the iPad two years ago didn't exist, right? Yeah. And now all of a sudden, you know, tablets are all the rage. And, you know, I saw some stat, you know, about, you know, the, the percentage of internet traffic is now associated with tablets. And, you know, it's phenomenal. The growth of these things, so you know, stuff does change very quickly, and the whole market shifts, and we we have to shift with that. Uh, but again, we have to do it in a very deliberate fashion, knowing where our strengths of the company is, knowing the expectations that you all have on us, and and to make sure that from a design perspective, we're 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 doing right by you, um, applying things that that make sense, um, and but also again making sure that that fits your expectations of how you're going to run your businesses on our, our portfolio of technology. And, and I'm, I'm for one interested to see how the likes of salesforce.com are going to keep up with their six month 
release schedule their summer of whatever year, winter of whatever year, before something catastrophic happens and they've got to roll the entire thing back out. So I, I think there may be a change control tsunami coming at some of these companies <laughs> that do like to roll this out. I mean, Facebook, yeah, they can do whatever they want. They've got no one to report to. But Salesforce.com is, is, is a paid-for service, and, and I think they have a lot to lose were they to get it wrong at some point. And I think it's only a matter of time before they do. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the cloud-based stuff, as you, as you all know well, is um, – you know, people can change their mind about vendors pretty quickly, and in in many cases, it, it you know, they can move um, very quickly. And so, again, we want to make sure that you know when we're out there, we've got stuff that's going to stay up. It's you know, it's going to be useful. Um, it's going to be compelling, and so forth. But you know, we are going to be rock solid. And so, again, I I agree with you. I think there's a lot of folks out there who you know they do move you know rather quickly and so forth, and. You know, and frankly, I think that you know that is some some respects can be a disservice to users who are are trying to do again. You know, the, people aren't out there to operate your UIs. People are out there to get their jobs done, to connect with customers, to track leads, and so forth. And sure, if you're making improvements in that, that's all grand. But again, change for the sake of change, arbitrary changes because you think something looks better, is not what we're after. We want to design change that is meaningful and improves that core task. That's, I think, the primary difference. So, Chris, do you see the continuation in the last, uh, well, since 8.5, point dot point. So I'm talking about 8.5 to 8.51 to 8.52. We've actually seen new features and additional functionality added into the notes client. So I know you mentioned a moment ago that, you know, you're not going to keep up with people, you're not going to keep on coming out with beta releases, but are we going to see a continuation of this phase of feature development, feature improvement in the short term from IBM? You know, I, I think we, we, in, we intend certainly to, to um, be terribly competitive, right, to continue our competitive run with notes and our other products. I mean, so I don't want you guys to misinterpret anything I'm saying is, you know, we're slowing down on uh, feature development and so forth, right? But I, I do want you to take away that, you know, we are looking very deliberately at other dimensions of the problem of, of, of pushing software out than just crafting new features. I mean, you know, our, our, the folks out in Redmond, you know, think that software development is all about, you know, pounding new features on folks. Well, you know... I mean, how many times do you use the 85 different things that are in a ribbon, you know, when you're trying to write a document? In their defense, I can now spell check in Azerbaijani. <laughs> <laughs> but again, this is the art the core task. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a typographer, right? You know, I was trained as a classic typographer. You know, I, I love type, right? But I, I don't kern type in presentations, right? So, I mean, there's all kinds of things that I think we have to look at very deliberately, the appropriateness of the stuff that we're pushing out. And it's not about a feature race to make, you know, the, the checkboxes uh, uh, to say, you know, we've got five more things out there. It's about, I think, one of the grand things about the last, you know, 10 years of software development has been a changing tide around, you know, are we supporting those core tasks and are we doing it in the most intuitive way possible? It's not about that feature race. And some people get that. Some people don't. All right. So we're going to continue to look at the feature set. We've gotten tons of great ideas from users all across the globe on things they want to see in notes and we're looking at all of that but we're also looking really hard at the core tasks that we support today and asking ourselves have we done this well enough 
Can we do this better? Can we refine this user experience, make it more predictable, you know, simpler, more intuitive? And so you're going to see, I think, running neck and neck with feature development, you're going to see us looking very carefully at you know, the things that exist today. And are there ways for us to, again, very deliberately, not arbitrarily, very deliberately make them better, make them easier for you, make the adoption of our tools um, more compelling case for you all when you're when out there talking to folks. For example, you know, I want Darren to have a hell of a lot easier time when it comes to, you know, talking about a, a, an exchange of notes migration. And, you know, so we want we want to make that case so you guys can, you know, continue to do that sort of work and, and be terribly successful at it. I think this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, Chris. I, I so appreciate you giving us the background to some of these design decisions and some of the programs you run because sometimes kind of on the outside of IBM, we don't necessarily hear about these things. It really helps to understand how you come to some of these decisions. Uh, and, and I'm sure people will go away with a lot more knowledge than they had previously. I'd love to talk to you as well about the Lotus Community stuff that, um, that Joyce is doing in the information development uh, team. So we'll definitely have to have you back on at another stage to, to ask you about those things too. Unfortunately, okay. as usual, yep. t- time has kind of caught up on us. Um, so we'll we'll run through <laughs> some of the other news um, that's been around the community. And Chris and, and Matt, feel free to jump in on these. Just quickly cover some of the stuff that's been going on this week. Um, the big thing really has been uh, a, a new announcement uh, that Ed made, I think it was on Tuesday, around Lotus Live Notes support for BlackBerry and Android. Uh, and I guess this is further uh, kind of evidence of IBM support for some of the mobile platforms that are out there. It's an additional charge feature. It's $10 user a month i think for the blackberry feature uh, and with with different user limits to some of the rest of lotus live notes but again darren it's, it's got to be good news that, that that support's out there and, and we're seeing lotus live notes go, kind of go from strength to strength really yeah you know mobile was was the thing that was missing from lotus live notes when it when it first shipped you know they added iphone support a couple of weeks ago i think it was like december maybe um and now they've added blackberry and android support now the blackberry is a stumping one because it's a 300 user limit which Kind of, you know, would kind of you you got to scratch your head about the cloud stuff when you can only use a BlackBerry if you move 300 users to the cloud. So I'm a bit confused about that right now. But hopefully we'll see them numbers come down because I remember when when, when Lotus Live Notes first came out, it was like 50 users, and then they reduced that. So hopefully we'll see some movement. Yeah, I think so. On that, on that one, we had a customer. Or sorry, I had a customer walk into my office literally put their BlackBerry down on the desk in front of me and say, I'm getting rid of this thing, what do you recommend? They're looking at Lotus Live. Two-user site, perfect for Lotus Live. Unfortunately, I can't recommend this solution to it. Does, does, does anyone know if a traveller has a limit, limited number of users as well? I don't believe there is. Okay. I think it's just limited to the same number of users you're licensed for on the Lotus Live Notes side. So it's, it certainly opens out. So, Matt, sorry, why can't you offer a solution? Because the BlackBerry support is only 300 users. Pure and simple. If we go and put this particular customer on a BlackBerry Enterprise plan so that he can go and collect his contacts, collect his calendar entries and collect his to-dos off his Lotus Notes server then he's got to go and put a bez in. So at the moment, all he can do is collect his email. He's seeing all of his friends running around with iPhones, etc. you know, <laughs> synchronising their calendars. Not synchronising their to-dos, of course, but they're synchronising <laughs> calendars and their contacts. So the, the guy's asking me, you know, what do I do? Do I go to iPhone? Do I go to Android? Um, of course, I'm not going to recommend Nokia at the moment, but... Um, 
there he is sitting there with a BlackBerry. And if IBM seriously want to get into small business, 90% of the businesses in our region employ less than 20 people. IBM are missing a huge opportunity right there. And, it, it, and in the US, 50% of businesses are 50 people or less. There you go. And I'm sure the stats are very similar in Europe too. So it, it's an area that just is unreached uh, by a lot of IBM products at the moment. So I'd love to see change. And you mentioned Nokia there, Matt, and, and that's been one of the, the big pieces of news kind of outside this community. But, but you know, in, in general tech press this week has been the new alliance between Nokia and Microsoft in terms of putting Windows Mobile 7 on some of those Nokia devices. I think you're, you're quite an advocate for Nokia, aren't you? How, how do you feel about that move? Do you think it's a good one for Nokia to make? I don't believe it's a very smart move at all. To be blunt, Stuart, it's in one fell swoop, Nokia alienated their developer community. Um, they got a lot of people offside. People who have used Windows Mobile in the past don't want to use Windows Mobile again. I've supported a lot of customers who have implemented Windows Mobile. It, okay, it might have been Windows CE, it might have been you know Windows Phone 6, but they're just not interested in the platform. So when you go and tie a platform that's lost 50% market share in 12 months with a device manufacturer who I believe make far superior devices to anyone else, then it's not necessarily going to be a winner and I, I don't personally don't believe that it's going to be the saviour of either company or platform. And, and what was the comment where he said uh, we, we live, we're on a burning building or a burning house or something like that was his, was his memo. I, I think going Windows Mobile 7 has just poured, just poured millions of gallons of gasoline on that <laughs> fire and he has just set Nokia adrift and this is going to be the death of them. Well, the, the interesting thing, Darren, they, they were about to release this fantastic Linux-based operating system. It, it ran quickly. All of the development that we were running on it, um, me as a Nokia developer, the thing just was fast, it was smooth, the user interface was fantastic, and it's just been completely cut off at the knees with... The only warning being we're standing on a burning bridge a couple of days before from, dare I say it, an ex-Microsoft employee. Well, and, and I think this needs to be a lesson to people who bring in Microsoft executives to be CEOs of your company. Expect within six months to squarely line up behind the Microsoft product no matter how bad it is. And I think, you know, much as we've got issues with things like Office and, you know, Exchange and so on, at least they are, you know, significant market players. And and I just echo what you said, Matt, is that Windows Mobile is, is almost gone from the customers that I speak to. I don't know of any customers that have it as their strategic choice for platform. Um, uh, you know, and the users that, that can choose their phones that were running it two or three years ago, and I, I had Windows Mobile phones in the past, aren't running it today. So why would you align your, you know, very significant company like Nokia? 
Nokia is to that platform seems very bizarre. And I know Windows Phone 7 is, is a much better platform. It's, it's got some good reviews, but even so, the sales have been pretty poor so far. So it seems strange to, to, to make that decision, apart from, as you say, the link between this new CEO and uh, Microsoft in the past. And it, it's even more sure, bizarre. the last time you saw a Windows mobile device? I've never seen one. No, I've, not, I've never seen a Windows Mobile 7 device at all. So, Darren, when was the last time you saw a Nokia device in the US? Uh, Lotusphere. <laughs> uh, yeah, besides mine, sorry. Um, uh, yeah, I, you don't see them in the US. It's, that's the kind of the unwritten rule, right? And, and I think that was one of the reasons behind this decision was we need some market penetration of the US. But even in the US, Windows Mobile 7 sales have got to be at least in the low single digits. And it, it makes it even weirder the fact that they'd actually talk to RIM about licensing maybe the BlackBerry OS and even the talk to Google about Android. And, and this is the one they picked. It's, you know, if, you, if you're in that free horse race and this is the one you pick, I, I just don't get it. it. You know, it would have made more sense for Microsoft to come and buy Nokia and then make them do that. But as someone said on Twitter, Microsoft just acquired Nokia for zero billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah the, the interesting follow-ups to the articles that were posted, when, when was it, Friday week, mm -hmm. were yeah. all about, um, I'm sorry, ELOP saying, well, we had a choice. It was one of a three-horse race and Symbian or Mego, whatever the platform that Nokia were currently developing, was just not figuring in our equation. The issue I have with that is how large Nokia are outside of the US. Well, it's, it's huge. You know, in Europe, they're, I think, still the major uh, handset manufacturer. Certainly, everybody who isn't on a smartphone right now is, you know, a, a large significant majority of those are on Nokia devices. Having said that, their market share has been dropping like a stone for a while. So I don't know how those stats work out. But certainly, they're still a pretty major player outside the US. And Chris, I don't want to put you in a sticky position here and ask you to speak for IBM, but I'd be interested to know that this clearly puts um, Windows Phone 7 kind of a higher kind of profile. Are you, you know, are you seeing more uh, demand for, for Windows Phone 7? I know Ed has said you've kind of got a, a watching brief in terms of just seeing where it goes. Are you seeing any pull from people to, to, to support Windows Phone 7? Well, the Windows platform on the mobile devices has always been on our list. Um, and we'll remain on that. And I think, you know, again, with some of these new developments, you know, we're going to, we're in a bit of a wait and see kind of mode and see how these things unfold. I, th I think for us, you know, we've got a lot of work cut out for us um, in uh, you know, interesting design work cut out for us in the mobile space. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested, as everyone is, to see exactly what this means for where Nokia is headed and, and um, you know, how the adoption of the, the Windows piece is going to affect their business. So if customers continue to come to us and say, this is a, a platform for us, we, we want it, we, we have to have it, then of course we're going to answer that. And that's good to hear. I mean, it's what we want you to be is responsive to customers and responsive to demand. So I have no problem with that position at all. So rattling through some of the, the remaining news topics, uh, there's a new book from Pact Publishing that, you know, we mentioned several times in this podcast how well the books are doing, whether it's Mastering X Pages last week or, or some of the other books that Pact have published. So this is a book by um, Keith Brooks and a number of other people on Quicker, um, Quicker for Domino administration. Good to see that out. Darren, have you had a chance to have a look at this yet? I, I have not. It only came out like uh, I guess yesterday or the day before, so it was a pretty 
immediate release um and i haven't had a chance to look at it yet but but packet do seem to have a buy free enterprise ebooks for 75 bucks which is actually a pretty good price so i may be going out there and picking up a few We've got a link in the show notes for that as well. So that, that I guess, will uh, involve the same time user guide that um, that uh, Duffer and Marie put together as well. So that might be a very good deal for some people. Also in the news this week, Cisco killed their uh, email platform, their cloud-based sort of commodity email. That's quite interesting to, to kind of compare with how people are putting so much emphasis on the cloud going forward. People like Microsoft and, and obviously Lotus Live as well are really selling it for you know, commodity email packages. And yet... Cisco were kind of jumping out of this. Did, did you see this, Darren? Yeah, I never quite understood why they got into it in the first place. It was like what called WebEx email or something like that is what it was called. And, you know, out of the blue yesterday, they suddenly released, you know what, we are getting out of this business. Thanks. We learned a lot and we learned we don't want to do this. <laughs> and, and it kind of makes you wonder, uh, you know, based on the cost ratios that I think you maybe already have to be in this business to get in this business. I think it's the barrier of entry is so high insofar as you have to drop the price so low in order to entice and keep customers. But you, you've kind of got to wonder what, what Microsoft's going to do for, for Office in the in the coming years where, you know, IBM likes to harp on the Office software as a commodity. You know, obviously now email really is. So, you know, are we going to see the same problem? Are Microsoft going to have the same problem in, in releases after Office 2010? And I, I think they might. It's going to certainly give me interest to see how that uh, market kind of evolves, particularly around Office. Something to be very notable in the UK this week is how much advertising there is for for Microsoft's cloud offerings. Um, you know, I went through Waterloo Station, which is one of the mainline uh, rail stations in London, and there is just Microsoft branding everywhere. So, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Whether they can establish that kind of brand leadership role for cloud-based offerings, we'll have to see over the coming months. And lastly, um, there's a new XPages forum was announced this week. This is a, a new forum, I guess, probably, uh, I don't know, whether that, does that sit within your um, your sort of powers at IBM, Chris? It, it, are the forums part of, part of the information development team? It does indeed. Okay, and so, th- so this is a new XPages-based uh, template that the guys have rolled out for the forum. There certainly seems to be some, some really good new features in there. Yeah, we're terribly excited about that. I know the team has been working on that for some time, and you know, I've been uh, just delighted to see the response from the community on that forum. I know Joyce has been working hard with our our team and getting the right kind of features put together for it. And you know, we're, we're delighted to push it out there and and look forward to everyone using it and helping us make it even better. And and I think it's a very good idea. I could never work out over the years why there wasn't a separate development and admin forum anyway because. Once, once the forums start to get bigger, it's hard to find a lot, and it's good to see them pull out the X pages thing. And and I think so, somebody had asked on Twitter, did they think it is a good idea? And I didn't see anybody say they thought it was a bad idea. So kudos to IBM. Excellent. Be interesting to see how that develops over time. Certainly, that template uh, could be very, very useful if it's made more widely available for for that kind of forum based on X pages. So good work, guys. So that brings us to the end of our, our list of topics for this week. We're a bit over time, but I think it's been a, a fascinating discussion. So as, as usual, we round off with a tip from, from each member of the panel. So Darren, do you want to kick us off? Uh, yeah, I don't have a tip. Uh, I have a quote, which I'll get to in a second, but I also have a uh, Mastering X Pages ebook to give away. And a gentleman named Andrew Welsh from the University of Tasmania. Aren't you in Tasmania, Matt? Yes, I am, actually. Okay, you may, you may know him. 
Um, he actually was picked from the deluge of emails we got for the ebook. Um, so he will be getting sent, uh, if we have his email address, I guess we do if we got an email off him. Yeah. Um, he will be getting sent the ebook code where he can uh, go to the IBM Press site, put the code in, and download the, the ebook in its complete 750 PDF glory, page glory. So good, good um, well done to Andrew Welsh. Um, and I actually, I don't have a tip, but I have a quote. Uh, ben Poole literally just posted something about the end of the IT department. And, and I, I was kind of perusing that right before we started the podcast. And, and a quote from a gentleman named Upton Sinclair goes something like this. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, <laughs> which goes back to the whole cloud talking and, and around the idea that if, if you think you can just stand there and say, no, we're not moving to the cloud or we should never look at the cloud, you know, at some point it, it, it's going to come down to someone realizes your salary is tied to that. Um, and, and I think this big train is coming for us all. So it may be time to start. Uh, you know, coming up with better answers than it's not secure and it's the uptime sucks. Uh, but I thought that was a very good quote. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that, Darren. And Chris, do you have a tip for us? Since you guys forgot to ask me what it's like to manage Mary Beth, um, my tip. <laughs> my my tip is is uh, you should always surround yourself with people who are passionate about your business, like. <laughs> And when you do that, fantastic stuff happens, and it makes your job a heck of a lot easier. Great that. today. Excellent. Well, we really appreciate the the work that you and all your team do. I mean, you know, clearly there's some notable names we, we know about, Mary Beth Raven and Joyce Davis and, and Amanda Bauman and many, many others, uh, too many to mention, but we do appreciate all the work they do and their commitment to the community that we belong to. So, so thank you for, for all of them that take part. And Chris, thank you so much for taking part in the podcast today. Really appreciated your input. Thanks, you guys. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Look okay. forward to doing it again sometime. We must definitely have you on again. And, and Matt, do you have a tip for us? I haven't got a tip for you, mate. Well, of course, I'm not going to mention wildfire.openntf.org <laughs> to anyone. Um, I've got a challenge for everyone. If your administrator has a imposed a limit on your mail file I'd like you to try this for a week instead of clicking reply with history hit the drop down choose reply type away with your message if you can't remember what someone was saying go to the view menu and choose parent preview you'll be able to see your reply and the original email on the screen at the same time but when you send you're only sending your reply. Let Lotus Notes Conversations handle the thread and keep the size of your mail file down so you stay under your quota. I never knew that feature was there, Matt. <laughs> I didn't. I just tried it. I was like, wow. <laughs> hey, it goes back to our discussion we had earlier on. Matt, thank you so much for taking part in the podcast. I know it's very, very late where you are, but we really appreciate your involvement. And, and once again, I, I appreciate the session you did at Lowsphere. We've posted the video of that this week uh, and I'm sure many people will be watching that so thank you so much not a problem at all guys thanks for including me 
And my tip, just to finish off, uh, is is to look out for a new podcast coming uh, probably early next week. Uh, Lisa Duke uh, of uh, STS, uh, Darren's other half, is launching a podcast which we'll tell you more about next week. Um, but it's well worth looking out for that. It's going to cover the business side of social business. So um, so keep keep an eye out for for news of that and and listen to the first episode when it comes available. And what's it called? It's called Get Social, Do Business. <laughs> Which is a great, great topic. IBM should think about doing something more about that <laughs> that <laughs> phrase. No, it, it, it looks for it, it's it's looking like it's going to be an excellent podcast for everybody to listen to, particularly maybe to get um, folks in your organisation to listen to that aren't technical, that don't necessarily get the the topics that we discuss on this podcast, but want to just know more about how uh, collaboration and social software can help their business. This could be a great introduction to that. And and I do actually have a tip. Um, if you never want to speak to your other half again, get them an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> so she's enjoying the iPad then? Yeah, it should be called a divorce part. That's what the I stands for. I'm pretty sure it's, it's, it's the I in divorce because you, you never you never speak another word after after she gets that out. Oh dear, I think I'm guilty on that count. <laughs> right, guys, thank you so much to everybody for taking part. This was This Week in Lotus. Bye for now. All opinions expressed during this podcast are those of the participants only and do not necessarily represent those of their employer.